You're listening to Cinepunked, interactive discussions for film lovers. This episode, Burn the Witch. I'm Robert J. Simpson, and as always, I am joined by my erstwhile colleague, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And our token member of the public, the man who mixes these shows and makes us all sound so much better than we are in real life, Ben Simpson. Hello, everybody. So today we're talking about The Love Witch. This is the 2016 American horror comedy directed by Anna Buller. And this is perhaps one of the most provocative and interesting and innovative films that I have seen in many a year. So we, we, we've been talking about this for a while uh, behind the scenes. And, and we felt that actually this would be a really good one to, to get our teeth into. Are we calling it horror? Well, see... Yeah. I, I, I think back in the days where I was editing a horror magazine, this would have been top of my list for films to include. But why, though? This is the question. I mean, it certainly it, it looks, it makes lots of visual references to the Hammer series. Um, and that's obviously a very conscious choice by Biller. But why are we calling it horror? Is it because it explores um, sort of the witch and the connection to female sexual power? Is that the horror element? Is it because there's a teensy bit of gore? I, I think the film that this perhaps is most closest to for my um, my mind is actually The Wicker Man, um, which again is sort of, it, it actually is a genre kind of flipping. Um, it's, it, it doesn't sit neatly within horror. I mean, a lot of times it's described as a, a musical, which The Wicker Man actually is. And to be mm-hmm. fair, there is a fair bit of music, a uh, musical interplay in The Love Witch as well. But I think when you've got those tropes of, um, you know, the paganism, the witchcraft, there is a fair bit of uh, of killings. There are killings, but I wouldn't call it a fair bit of killing. Um, More than one. They are fairly regular. Okay. Um, okay and, whilst, so and whilst admittedly there is not a huge amount of gore within the film, when we're talking about a film that in many ways is paying homage to the, the films that were produced in the 60s and the 70s, and you mentioned Hammer Horror, I'd actually yeah. say that probably the visual reference is more the Roger Corman AIP films. Um, okay. But, but, there, but when, you, when you're doing that, I think that... Um, I think actually you don't need the gore because the gore was kind of one of those things that was secondary to a lot of those horror pictures. I'm just I'm going to go back to this this idea that there is more than one killing. There's a suicide certainly. Um, there is one explicit killing, and there's one hinted at possible nod to killing. Um, and there's another death. There's another death, but that's not nobody's murdering anybody. Well, how do you define a horror film? I think there's uh, there's got to be some element that's actually supposed to be horrific whether that flows from supernatural elements whether that flows from um sort of the the darkness that lies within all man um to me it's more of an exploration of um female desire um and and for for those who are calling it horror um i i don't know that that seems fairly telling to me the paganism um, element is not played for horror. It's played for spectacle, I would argue, and it's played for uh, the, the sort of the nod to the divine feminine and and female empowerment. But if there's any horror uh, connected to the witchcraft, I think it's actually in the sort of the quasi abusive relationship that that the leader of the coven has with the members of the coven. We'll, we'll get into that as well. I think a little bit later because I want I want to talk about that specifically today. But I do think that this is a film that draws very. We, Anna has talked quite happily about this. There's, this is a film that draws very heavily 
on those certain genre films from from that era. Mm, agreed. And yeah. while, whilst I take the point, for for anyone who kind of is more used to more out and out horror films, this mm-hmm. sort of doesn't really fit that 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 brand. I also don't think it's really a comedy. But if you look at mm-hmm. things like the Wikipedia listing and, and a lot of the reviews, they refer to this as a horror comedy. Well, I, that's I don't because think because they have absolutely no category for this. Before you and I get into this for the next half an hour, yeah, I want to ask Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we were recording the last show, we gave you a bit of a build up to this one. Yeah, uh, what did you make of it? Um, it's, it's a strange one. It definitely is a strange one. I I wouldn't have classed it as a comedy, and I don't think I would have classed it as a horror either. It's it's weird. Okay. It's a pastiche of a lot of different yeah. genre nods, I would have said. Broadly, um, I, d- I don't think there was one bit in it that made me laugh. Well, I don't know. We, we were sort of watching the tail end of it again here when we, we, we came into studio today. And I mean, there's elements of it that I think that, that are certainly amusing. There's some of the very um, laboured performances mm. and lines that particularly on multiple viewings you kind of pick up the subtleties of it, you kind of appreciate just exactly yeah. what they're doing. And it is quite amusing to a certain extent. It's played for the sort of the, to the absurd level, mm. isn't it? Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe not sort of rolling about in the floor comedy, but sort of sophisticated, isn't that clever kind of I th- I mean, I think comedy it, maybe? I'm, I'm very, very aware that a lot of the, the, the kind of the pieces that have been written about this film do seem to have somewhat missed the point somewhat. And... I think that it draws from what we broadly classify as exploitational cinema, which would incorporate things like horror, um, the witchcraft films that were all in vogue at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. Um, I think that those things are there. There's also a kind of surrealist, psychedelic mm. um, kind of film as well. Uh, there is an awful lot of, particularly in the visuals. It is pretty out there. Yeah, I, I cannot disagree with that yeah, at all. It's, it's going for a very specific aesthetic and that aesthetic is designed to kind of make you so think of films of a particular era, including The Hammer. I, I'm not mm. absolutely 100% agreeing and I know that was a very conscious decision on the part of Anna Biller to, to evoke that. Um, for me, what it's th- that, that sort of evocation of Hammer Horror is not so much about the horror as such, but to kind of draw attention to the feminist issues associated with the horror. So to me, anybody labelling this horror, I think, you know, you're 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 there's there's a very interesting gender discourse going on with the desire to label that horror. I think part of the problem is that with any film that you market, you have to stick a label onto it, otherwise they can't market it. Yeah. yeah. Um so when you look at the companies that have actually picked up Anna's films for distribution as well, they tend to be the, the sort of distributing companies that normally deal with things like horror pictures. Um, I think this was Fright Fest at one point picked this mm-hmm. one up as well. Um, so you have these big kind of names within the, the horror community and they're the ones that ultimately have got behind it. Now, the horror community is sophisticated enough to realise that not everything is um, out and out gross, uh, fantastical, shocking even. Mm. Um, I mean, what we do in the shadows is uh, ostensibly, in, in some respects, a horror film, but it's also a, a rather brilliant, brilliant, cutting comedy mockumentary. It's not very horrific, but it's within mm. broadly, if you're going to define okay. it, yeah. it's a horror comedy. Yeah, and part of that is the aesthetics and those choices that you make. But again, I'm I'm asking, where does the horror come in? What, um, is, what is it that's horrific about this, apart from that? Rather brutal murder, well, which is 
it's the very, okay, spoiler alert, it's the very close of the film. Can we get into maybe the representation of the female in a bit? Because I think, as you should have hinted at, that is probably where the the oh. actual horror is. Oh, I think we'll get is. into the representation of the female. But let's, let's talk first of all about, um, let's, let's take us at very surface level, uh, the aesthetics of this film. Which gorgeous. Oh, they are so gorgeous. Oh yeah, fabulous. I, I couldn't I couldn't get over the way you, you told me about it and um you were saying that when was the shot? Six two thousand fifteen, I think. Fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way it looks, like it looks of a certain time. It doesn't look new. No, it looks like it's fifty years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fabulous. That's that's amazing. It took me right up until the third act to even be certain that it wasn't supposed to be a period piece. I don't get cars, you see. Cars. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> says, says the token feminist, completely gender conforming here, but <laughs> I didn't get the car references. It wasn't until Trish pulled out a mobile phone that I went, oh God, is this supposed to be present day? Yeah, if if you didn't see the black BMW that, uh, oh, what's her name, pulls up in, the one that... Um, Trish. Trish, yeah. Gives her the key to the house. Mm. Yeah, if you hadn't known when that car was from, you probably wouldn't know, but, or if you weren't into cars, but yeah, that, that was a big giveaway for me anyway. There, there's something about the film and the way that it looks that it's meant to be sort of timeless. Mm. Um, yes. It is very much of an era, it evokes that sort of 1950s, 1960s visuals. Yeah. Um, it was shot on 35 mil. Uh, they're using the same kind of cameras, the same kind of lenses as best as possible. I mean, it, the, the cinematographer is a specialist in, in shooting that kind of look as well, isn't he? I can't imagine he gets a lot of call for that, but... Um, he's, it, it seems to be one should. of the reasons why... Should. I'm, I'm sure he's, I was reading that's one of the reasons why she used him, because there's very, very few people that actually understand how to use 35 mil these days yeah. and to use it in in that sort of way and to understand the lighting that goes into making it look a particular way and the processing that makes it look a particular way. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's rich. It's colourful. The reds are so red. It's absolutely a feast for the eyes, this film. I think when you're talking about it, not only just the, the way that the camera work is, but there's also a lot to be said about oh, the set design, the oh, everything. Yeah. Sublime. Yeah. So, oh, do you know anything about how this was, about the design of this film at all? I know nothing. So, Annabella is not just the director and the writer oh, of this. Yeah, the, yeah, at the start it says um, she's the well, production... She writes the music. She also did the production design. She wrote the music? She wrote yeah. the music, yeah. Wow. Um, you can get it on her website. Cool. I'll have to check that out. Yep. Um, and she also is responsible for a lot of the, 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 the actual set. And the costumes as the well. Costumes. She, yeah, she basically costume. she stitched the costumes herself. And, a lot of, and she threaded the rugs. You, apparently you can't get um, a pentagram rug for love nor money in the US. Um, she basically threaded it herself because she knew this aesthetic that she wanted. She knew this exact look that she wanted. Um, she did the paintings herself. C- couldn't get the right look for the stuff. So again, she decided to go and hand paint everything. On, she on painted set. those? Uh-huh. That's um, incredible. I mean, you, you know I, I have hesitations with auteur theory, but if there was ever <laughs> going to be a director that was a prime candidate for auteur theory, it is Anna Biller because there's just so much of the creative work that goes into her films is is done by her. So auteur theory, do you understand what that means, Ben? Nope. Excellent. I, I did all these little moments where we yeah. can kind of educate our <laughs> audiences. No, I do not know. So auteur is the French word for author. 
Arthur. Okay. And the idea, basically, and Rachel will correct me if I'm wrong because she teaches this stuff. I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> I know because I've had to substitute you for classes. <laughs> I've seen it in your notes. Yeah. Um, auteurs, basically, the idea is that the film that you're watching is basically comes down to being the creation of one person, usually the director. Mm. And that everything that you see within the film is under the control of the director. They are the author of the film. Okay. Incredibly problematic because there are many, many more creative professionals involved in creating the, the way a film looks, usually. So we have all, we've all worked together on, on film projects, but we have also all worked on sets. Mm-hmm. So we all understand. Right, yeah. What, what, what is needed. Yeah. yeah. You, you know that when we're on set. You know, there's the actors, there's the extras, then there's the, the camera operators, there's the directors, there's, and they often seem the to be The 80s, the sound guys, the... That's it. Somebody's yeah. written a script, somebody's yeah. producing the whole damn yeah. thing and writing the checks in the first place. Somebody else is then going to market the shit out of that. Yeah. Um, if you talk about something like Blair Witch Project, I mean, there was the marketing that really sold that film. So, I mean, to me, mm. those guys are the authors as much as anybody else. But when you're looking uh, at this stuff, you know that these people all seem to work independently of each other as well. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that you can turn around and say, that is amazing because of that director mm-hmm. on his own. Yeah. But I think there are certain filmmakers who, when you look at them, they do seem to leave a mark. So the idea is that certain directors, when you look at their films, you can tell it's their films. So Quentin Tarantino, you can usually spot a Quentin Tarantino film. Or a Hitchcock. Orson Welles. Orson Welles. My favourite. Hitchcock. Um... Annabelle definitely, but she hasn't made that many films, so it may be harder to kind of tease this out of people. Um, but then you have other directors who actually don't just direct, they do other bits onto the production as well. So writer-directors, we're fairly... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you have somebody who's then also writing the music, so we're talking about, like, say John Carpenter. Mm. You know, he often writes the music for his films, they have a very diff- distinct feel as well as him having involvement with the script and, and mm. the direction. Or... Well, Hitchcock had a lot to do with his scripts as well. Um, I think Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin would write his films, he would direct his films, he would star in his films, and he would write the music as well. So, Adam, doesn't Adam Sandler, she does that as well, doesn't he? <laughs> Adam Sandler is an auteur. Uh, do you know what? It's it's completely... I will I will listen to any arguments for any director as an auteur. I have sat and, and patiently listened to arguments for Michael Bay as an auteur. So, so Adam, Adam Sandler, does he... I'm pretty sure, like, if you, you look up most of the films that he's done, he's written them, mm. acts in them, he's written music for them. Mm. It's certainly true that you would be able to recognise an Adam Sandler film in a lineup. That's true. You see, this is the problem with auteur theory, isn't it, though? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not necessarily a mark of quality, it's a mark of, of, of sort of distinctive... It was originally a mark of quality as well, though. But we know it's not really. Well, yeah, but that's one of the problems, isn't it? Yeah. Quality so, is subjective. But Anna Biller, I think just absolutely takes the the biscuit for somebody who really she's in control of every mm. aspect of that production yeah do you think she is that way because of all the problems that they had that, so did you read about the problems that they had mm. on the production i read a few little things yeah yeah um she's she's done this before so she's made a number of short films um about 2007 she released a film called Viva have you seen that no. I haven't but I'd no. like to Viva is is um very distinctive very interesting in its own right um it is much more obviously a kind of homage and pastiche of sort of the sexploitation films of the 1970s and she stars in that as well. So she puts herself up on screen. She says, say, that she went for the sort of criticism and feedback about herself that she hasn't experienced since she was a teenager. Um, it was, wasn't necessarily a great experience in that respect, I think. 
Um, but whenever she was making Viva and also when she's making The Love Witch, she's had problems within the crew itself. Now, she, she had a, a Twitter discussion about this not that long ago, and she talked about her experiences and the fact that the line producer basically ran off, that the ADs were constantly being twitched around on her, that people were telling her that they couldn't do things that actually they could do, just constantly trying to sabotage the production. Why? Why did... Why? 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 Uh, the, the suggestion that is kind of there, but obviously we cannot say because we were not part of the production, is that it's basically because she's a woman. Really? And a lot of the people who are working here are men who don't want to see women succeed. She's also got a very specific um, vision, hasn't she, that is not necessarily... I'm not, I don't want to say it's anti-male because it certainly isn't anti-male, but it's not one that is as comfortably pro-male as a lot of what Hollywood is trying, it, it tends to produce. Um, I, I think she definitely does films that are great for actors, but I can see why if you were part of the industry, you might have resistance to it. But if you, if you look at, um, you look at Love Witch, I mean, Ben, you're a, a straight, uh, a straight manly man. Yeah. <laughs> Got a beard and everything. Beards everywhere. Depends what kind of beard you're talking about, isn't it? Ben has a beard. Who <laughs> knew? <laughs> I can show you a photo. I don't need to see that. What my beard? You can see it right now. There, there you go. It's on on the microphone. Our oh, pro listeners. Um. For you watching The Love Witch, yeah. I mean, did you how how did you find that as an experience? Did you find what's the was the material there to titillate you? Were you titillated? Um do you mean is is let's, let's talk about the eye candy. Right, and there's a lot of eye candy in that film. There's so much eye candy in that film. Uh, did uh, you was it was that sort of typical of the sort of films that you would watch? Um, not really, no. I'm more about <laughs> You know, action and... As a heterosexual male watching that film, there are images within that film that are going to appeal to a typical heterosexual male. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about scantily clad women. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tits everywhere. Yeah. We're talking about not actually clad women a lot of the time. Yeah. We're also talking about not actually clad men, though. Well, I want yeah, there's to a lot of dongs talking about, too. <laughs> I, we were it's having like this discussion... Game of Thrones. Yeah, on the car on the way down. I think the dongs outnumber the muffs. Um, yeah, I, I would uh, agree. I there's not much muff. Yeah, I, I genuinely believe there's more dong than bush. I, I haven't counted, but I, I do think it's one. I mean, so this is, let's bring up the issue of feminism. Let's. But let's, let's, let's ease our way into this one, because I think for a lot of people, this is something that they're going to find difficulty getting their head around, probably including me. Um, but I think it's one of the things that sort of sets this apart from most films. Yeah, <laughs> Biller is very definitely a, a feminist director. I mean, mm. she's a self-identified feminist director, and I don't think you could watch The Love Witch and not understand that there's a feminist sensibility or is that just me? Am I am I fundamentally broken in this respect now that I can't watch anything without doing the gender thing? I, th- I think you're fundamentally broken. I probably am. I, whenever I watched it, like I heard these were telling me, you know, feminist thing and all this stuff and I just watched it for what it was. I, I didn't have any you know, preconceived I th- I ideas th- about it. Yeah, I think as a film works on a couple of different levels. I agree, yeah. I think that there is this sort of, and this is why I want to ask you about it first, because mm-hmm. I think there's this sort of surface thing that appeals to sort of typical cinema-going audiences. Now, most films 
tend to be produced with the idea of the male, what we call the male gaze. Um, this idea that films are basically shot for for men. Um, you know, there's stuff that we we put ourselves in position. It's it's, it's about pleasing our egos and our ideals, mm-hmm. and that's why generally, you know, you get to see all these naked women, but you don't get to see any cock. So when you have a film that presents you with the other, which goodness knows half the population have, um, you know, it, it is presenting this different viewpoints. So this is part of why I think that she is definitely a feminist filmmaker because most um, because there's a lot of dong in it. I think because there is dung at all, it doesn't. It, it generally always sticks out because it's well, not now, something you see. Now, let's be but, honest. Game of Thrones has yeah. a lot of dung, and, and nobody's going to argue that as a feminist tract. No. Have you watched that new Netflix series, Altered Carbon? No, oh, I really want to see that. There's dung in that. There's um, lots of dung, but there's also lots of tits. But it, but traditionally speaking, within Hollywood, within that structure, the reality is, is you do not see cock on screen. No, you, you, you don't. I mean, it's it's the, the, the last great taboo is mm. an erect penis, isn't it? Do you know, you, an, an erect ejaculating penis, I think, is the last I, I think it's just erect, to sure be honest. One, one of the other things, though, about this, um, in terms of the, the, the penises that you see on screen, it tends to be within the, it, within the rituals that are held yes. by the, the pagan coffin. Yeah. Now, this in itself um, is very much drawn, I think, from those sort of exploitational films about yes. witches that were produced in the 60s and 70s, largely including a guy called Alexander Saunders, who was the self-styled King of the Witches. Um, I've written a couple of articles about him. I must have haven't read any. Sorry, Bob. <sighs> Terrible. I'm not even going to ask, Rachel. I, I haven't read them either. <laughs> anyway. Sorry. But, so, um, but when you watch those films, the aesthetic is very similar to those scenes of, of the actual rituals itself. Um, it was very much about him. And there are a lot of cocks flapping around the place as well. Like I think that that so is, that's it's a direct reference. It's a direct to, reference. Of course okay. it is. Yeah. I mean, she, no, Annabella does talk about having t- having taken uh, Samantha Robinson to um, actual rituals and things as well as part of the research for the part. So they have very much invested themselves completely into this mm-hmm. world in which they're going to portray on screen right, to make it as legit as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is is based on rituals that do exist on the practices of coffins that, again, do exist. Mm. Um, so none of that is necessarily too far away from reality. Mm-hmm. I see why, I mean, I've walked into shops that are like the shops that feature in this film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've never gone asking for a witch bottle, but I'm sure they exist as well. I, I, it Here seems happen. plausible. Um, is, I, I haven't is that a real thing? Witch bottles? Yeah. yeah. Do you think they really have tampons in them? Mm, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you talk somebody about somebody else's piss. Somebody else's piss. Um, people buy these things. I, I I feel at this point I should be calling one of my Wiccan friends rather than me kind of. Uh, he probably should. <laughs> so we'll save that conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But witch bottles are something that is is known about. They do occasionally get discovered um, by people who are renovating houses and things. Okay. Uh, they're kind of like a charm. So they do exist. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the same way they have like sort of the voodoo dolls within this, yeah. Which again, our concept that do exist, this idea of an effigy mm-hmm. that represents a person mm-hmm. that's used to transfer energy and power mm-hmm. and, and sort of attention. So there is a huge amount of of that within film. I, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm. I feel like I'm lecturing now. It's no, not no, what this I want is this is this is interesting. Um, um, particularly in light of Biller's recorded statements on um, witchcraft as a, a sort of a. a a symbolic um, means of empowering women within film. She's quite yeah. dismissive of that, um, and and I happen to completely agree with her. Um, this this idea that you know she is she's very much tapping into that idea um, of you know the the divine feminine as sort of 
this this source of enormous female power and and it's sort of being analogous to oh this is definitely feminist because we're talking about divine feminine here but in fact what that power is predicated on is this idea that spells and magic is possible which you know not not to denigrate a religion but um there's no evidence that spells are 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 possible that magic is possible and so this idea that that somehow um empowers women versus sort of the violence that that empowers men in film is kind of spurious other fabricated religions are available yeah i should just say i have <laughs> i have no affiliation to any religion whatsoever um i would pray to whichever god you like it's not going to work Let's look at this as a as a film. So when she's talking about um, the idea of, and, and she describes in her press notes, the sexy witch. Mm. On the one hand, this is somebody who is very much um, a token of the male gaze. It's something that we can kind of last after and, she's, and admire. She's, and she's, she positions herself as such. I mean, she's actively trying to be the, the, the token of the male gaze. She's saying that to Trish. She's arguing to Trish that that is what a woman ought to be. The other side of that as well, though, is that there is, as Anna has sort of suggested, the idea that the woman as a witch is also a position of female empowerment. Mm. Um, And within the screen, I I don't really know that I agree with with that because I think the history of the cinematic representations of witchcraft are very much more geared towards male lust and desire rather than anything else. And, And, you know... She is the sexy witch. Yeah, and it strikes me very much that that's what Biller is trying to do with, um, she, she's she's having fun or playing, certainly, maybe fun is the wrong word, but she's playing with this idea that um, witch equals empowered, um, equals sort of sexually liberated, um, and sexual liberation equals empowered. And she's kind of deconstructing that in a really interesting way. I mean, Elaine is not exactly a mouthpiece for feminine revolution. You know, she's, oh, I must be loved, love me. I am only valuable when I am loved by a man. Um, and and Trish, if, if anybody, is the person who's standing there going, um, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, she says you're bra- you sound like you're being brainwashed by the patriarchy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, Trish is not our heroine. Elaine is our heroine. We are being asked to view this. Anti-hero. Yeah, okay. Well, anti-hero, I don't know that I would go as far as saying anti-hero. I think she's an incredibly sympathetic character. She's just clearly... Yeah, Uh yeah, she's just clearly... (laughs) I think she's mental. She's, she is, she's not... Her, she makes bad decisions and her her decision-making process is clearly (laughs) flawed. Um, I I pity her poor husband right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Flawed decisions. I'm sorry I stabbed you, darling. Okay, that... That, but that's not. You see, this. I'm sorry, I buried you. I that know. is the culmination of of a series of bad decision begetting bad decision begetting bad decision. I mean, that's the climax of the bad decisions. That's not necessarily Elaine. And I think the whole the whole film is kind of arguing that there's just this fundamental misunderstanding. I mean, I know Biller talks about. Um, um, this this idea that if men would only love women the way women want to be loved, then there'd be a much greater understanding between the, the sexes. I mean, that's one woman's interpretation. It's perfectly valid, and I think Elaine is kind of voicing that. But she's sick because she's, she 
had, um, she said she was cured by uh, a, a ritual mm-hmm. that was, you know, obviously she has a flashback to mm-hmm. said ritual. Um, so she must be sick and she must still be sick. She is sick. There, there is a discussion of this as well and, and sort of the discussions that have been had about the film. Um, Elaine is mentally unwell. Yes, very she's clearly. absolutely, I mean, utterly, utterly dependent on, on others. And but, but seeing her as a hero, I just, I just can't. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think we should and I don't think I won't. I, no, I don't think it's intended for you to see her as a hero. I don't, I don't get it. I find this really interesting that both men here are arguing against seeing her as a hero while the, the, the well, sole well, woman well, in the room well, is... Well, what's what's heroic, about heroic about, you know... You, one doesn't have to be heroic to be the hero of a piece. They, they, one just has to be the vehicle onto which one is supposed to be she is the central, mapping oneself. I, I get that she is the central protagonist and that the film is very much about her and her experiences and how she views the world. Mm-hmm. So actually it's quite unusual. We see the world from her eyes. Mm-hmm. This is not a male gaze kind of film. This is actually a film that's all about the female gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, we see how her distorted view of mm-hmm. her relationships. We see that her, her hallucinations and her fantasies, mm-hmm. her dreams... Her memories, they're all filtered through her eyes. She's, um, she's quite as... as we see, I do think she's supposed to be a sympathetic character. I don't think we're supposed to def- agree with her decisions at all. So I mean, in, she is clearly unhinged. In, but ter- in terms of sympathy, I mean, there is an element of it that you do kind of feel... I mean, it, you do feel a little bit for her. The fact that she is so kind of um, besotted by this desire for love and affection. She doesn't feel fully whole unless but, she is being loved by but someone. But the problem is her, her love is not an actual, it's not actually love at all. It's a temporary um, state of, it's, just, it's a temporary high. She's in love with being in love. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she uh, needs to be loved in order to feel like a functional human being. And that's clearly problematic. And that, like she, but what I think She meets Richard for what, like two days and the next thing she's like, he's going to propose. Which on the one hand yeah. is very much of those kind of old films where, you know, two actors meet, they, they kind of get thrown into a situation and the next day they're going to get married because it's all perfect. See, that's the other thing about this 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 film um, timeline yeah go on um, everything happens so quick uh, and there isn't really you don't get a sense of like time I think that there's supposed to be considerable amount of times in between mm. each of these fellas right from what I gather that affair mm-hmm. that she had with Richard Richard the husband the husband mm. no it's not Richard is it no yeah the husband yeah Richard's the, the husband is he yeah, or her husband. Griff is the cop. Griff is the cop. Griff yeah. is the cop, yeah. Richard, um, like, from just what Trish was saying in the film, it seemed like this this uh, affair, mm. bunny ears, um, has happened for a long period of time. Like, you don't really exactly see, Trish doesn't say how long she's going away on this thing for. Yeah, no, fair enough. It is you know, it, it is hard at times to work out the time scale of things that happen in the film. And then obviously you're given a clue that the Wade Wade? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that is that so the other the, the first dude? The, no, the second dude. He's not the actual first dude because the first dude was her husband. Wayne. Yeah. Wayne. 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 Um Wayne. Um obviously she had that one night and then three weeks later. Well, she, she, she also says that as she has, she makes a, a reference to the fact that she basically, you know, has this one night of intimate relationships with them and then they die. 
Yeah, but uh, well, does, that happen does, does that happen in one night or? I think with Wayne, it's definitely one night. Oh, it's definitely one night with Wayne, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the, the Richard affair goes on for a few weeks, certainly. I mean, mm. he, he sends her a birthday card. and But it's not that long, I don't think. I don't know that it's particularly long, no. but um, Because is she not with him whenever they discover the body? Wayne's body? Mm-hmm. No, that was before. Oh, gosh, I need to watch this again. Because, I'm going to cut um, this bit because it's just well, like too confusing. Well, basically... Uh, for, I've just watched this, so... Um, <laughs> you just watch it and you can't follow the time scream. No, well... The point I'm making is everything... It doesn't... You don't get a sense of time, and I think there's supposed to be a sense of time. Like, you only get little hints of, like, mm. you know, um, the three weeks that happened in between, um, like, you know, the the girl going and reporting it to mm-hmm. the police. You know, saying... Wayne's gone missing. He's been gone for three weeks. Um, can you look for him? I'm worried about him and all this stuff. All this mail's piled up, you know. Okay. And then, then they go out and look for his body, mm-hmm. find him at the house, and the bottle of piss and all that. You've picked up actually more than I did in terms of the time. So obviously there is enough. There's clues there if you actually listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly I got the sense that that these Wayne certainly is a one night thing because he can't handle the love that he has for her. No, and is there other relationships that she has in between these guys as well? Because I noticed, as I, don't I would, think so. Because when you she pulls out the drawer, yeah, when they pull out the drawer and you have a look at the the little, there's three of them. There's four. four. There's is there four? The fourth. You know what the name of the fourth one is? No, Robert. Okay. Spa this. My name's in there. Yeah. Okay, yep. that's interesting. Yep, I can't wait till that happens. There you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there, there must have been another bloke. Must have been another bloke. I know that Anna has said the original cut of this film would have been about three hours long if she'd included wow. everything, but she had the permit. Yeah. Um, so maybe that was... Maybe it. he's... Yeah. Could be. I mean, you talk about the bottle of piss. Um, the other thing about this one is, I think something else that a, a typical male-oriented film would not do is... Menstruation. Menstrual blood. Oh, the, 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 the tampon, yeah. yeah. Pissing in the jar, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a film... Sure into that. This is a film... <laughs> This is a film. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never quite sure how serious we take these podcasts. It's like, you know. I would take them very seriously. I'm just very, trying to. We, we, have, we have a laugh as well. I'm right? trying to put you off. He did. Professional face on. Uh, so, you know, it's one of the things that this film is also concerned with the female fluids. Yes. Which is not something that you find on a lot of films. I mean, we, blood is sort of the typical yeah. thing you see. I find that funny, um, you know, in her monologue thing. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously she's making her um, yeah. witch jar and, you know, she takes it out and puts it in the jar and they're like, oh, some men have never even seen a tampon and all this stuff. It's like, you know, yeah. No, I, I think... <laughs> This is, this is very current again because, I mean, there's been another big debate on Twitter recently about period shaming mm-hmm. um, and about, um, you know, a lot of stuff has come, there have been a lot of threads on Twitter talking about this and a lot of stuff has come out where, and I certainly wouldn't claim for a second that the two gentlemen in the room fall under this category, but there are some <laughs> men who very clearly don't know how any of this works. I mean, there's t- stories of women being asked by their male colleagues, can you not just hold it in? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> oh, is that an option? No, I wish we'd thought of that. <laughs> but um, wow, yeah. I, this is I, this is this is again why I I think that 
um, Elaine is such an interesting character. I mean, I think she's conceived of as this masculinist nightmare. She is everything that men are afraid that women are. Um, and she's not being, we're, we're not being asked to say that, yes, she's right but she's embodying all of these fears that are embodied in the, you know, the sort of the female, um, and and you know, and, and to such an extent that it is kind of ludicrous. Do you know that she's she's um, this? She embodies the divine feminine. She uses her sexuality to trap men. She's absolutely this black gaping hole of need. I need, I need, I need. I must be loved. Desperate to entrap men. Desperate to be married. And then she murders them. Do you know, and, and also she gets her period and, and very obviously gets her period and sticks her period products in places that men find them. She's, she is supposed to be this masculinist nightmare and we are supposed to look at her as a ludicrous symbol of everything that men are afraid of. Are you talking about the jar? Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> like, where else in this okay, movie did yeah. they find... I, I did mean the jar, <laughs> just okay. to be clear. Uh, and she puts a tampon in a jar of weed. Yeah, that she buries. That she buries. No, she doesn't bury it. She just leaves well, it. She does. Leaves it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, but even her monologue there said that you know if you bury it, with, you know it will protect from evil spirits. But she just leaves. Like I thought she was going to put it in the. In the she's crazy. Isn't bothered. She's not bothered. She's she's crazy. She doesn't. She's not committed to the cause properly. I think part of me also feels that she's using witchcraft purely as a way to get her own ends. It's a way to get some. Do you think she's an uh, a nympho? No, I don't think she's an nymph. No, I think she, I think she genuinely. I, I don't think she's after people for sex. The fact is, they die before she gets the chance to have a relationship. She she Pop uses yeah, but like maybe if she went about it in a normal fashion. Well, we, you we, see, she's got this idea. She's she's been fed this idea by kind of patriarchal society, which I'm sure is Biller's point. She's been fed this idea that the only possible way you can get a man to fall in love with you is by making your body available to him. And this is is sort of she she presents this as though this is sexual liberation where in fact we're watching this going sweetheart no that's that's the opposite of sexual liberation but again it's very much in keeping with how this kind of sexual liberation has been sold to women well i mean she is she's aside the fact that samantha robinson is absolutely gorgeous yes um there is also a 10 out of 10 <laughs> is that a 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 easily yeah I would. Samantha, if you're listening. <laughs> um, Sorry, Samantha, I'm married. <laughs> um, <laughs> I noticed Rachel didn't declare her status there. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I'm married and also straight, but I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is this thing where she um, she clearly does not need to enhance, but she ends up putting on a wig and the sort of yeah, I find The wig on top of weird, her hair that sort of looks kind of like the hair that she's got on the wig. Yeah. But then yeah. what's the blonde wig for? Because there's, there is a blonde wig. There is a question. But you see, I'm watching this as a woman and I'm totally understanding this. because, why? And this is why I think there is, there's a message here that, that maybe, and I mean, I'm not suggesting this in a patronising way, but maybe male viewers don't read this on this level because there is this constant message to women um, that, that you are not enough unless you enhance. I uh, disagree with that. No, I, I, and I to- men always do, but then they always point out when you're not wearing makeup, God, I, you look very tired today. Ask, and that's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but there's, there's, there's documented evidence that women who go to a job interview not wearing makeup are less likely to get the job. Um, 
Absolutely, no, I'm, I'm, I completely understand this, and, and it is, as you say, it is well documented, and this does happen, and men do still, when presented with the options, go for the dressed up um, yeah, rather the, than the dressed down. The women who are wearing natural look makeup, because there's this idea that, you know, you, you're, you're always going to choose the natural woman, um, the woman who's not made up, the woman who's not overdoing the, the sort of like the... Foundation, the, kicking it on. Exactly. But natural makeup is a natural look. It's not at all. It's not at all. No. And the amount of effort that goes into creating that natural look is something that we women sit and have a little laugh to ourselves about. Because the actual natural look is not what what it's presented as there, in the media. There is very definitely a whole discourse on the male gaze within this film and within males' perceptions of women and what women have to do in order to be presented. And I think the fact that, that Anna herself has had so many difficulties in getting her films made mm-hmm. and is so determined to do things her way um, and be so controlling of it, I, I think is, is, is there is a commentary there that, you know, we could talk for hours on. And I'm really glad she made this movie and actually got it finished, even though she did have all that trouble, because it is fabulous. It's, it's a fantastic film. It is yeah. absolutely mesmerising. I've seen a number of reviews talk about you have to just kind of give in to it, and I think that's very much the case. Um, there is a, a sort of a, a slight resistance at the start where you go, uh, what is this? And then you just go, okay, I'm with it now. And you just let it happen and it's mesmerising. Yeah, it takes you a little bit to get into it, like at the start, because I'm like, are you sincere? Are you not sincere? What, what is, what's your deal? You know, trying to figure yeah, um, Elena out, you yeah. know. Is this a realist quality to it as well? I mean, which, which sort of, for me, isn't even exemplified with the, the hallucinations. It's when they go into the Victorian tea room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly, it's, you're already represented yeah. with a film that feels like it's 1964. Um, and it goes to like the, the 18th Victorian century. Era. And it's, there's no but sort it's, of... it's pastiche to the point of absurdism. And that, I think, is underlining how absurd a lot of what it's dealing with is. Uh, oh, oh, I forgot as well about the uh, the medieval fair. Oh yeah, the Renaissance yeah. fair. <laughs> and, and the mock marriage. Yep. Yeah. Which we should probably comment on briefly, um, because it is such a turning point in that the film. That was bizarre. That was so bizarre to me. Um, like, oh, let's go ride a horse today. <laughs> yeah. And I'd... then, and then there's, like, that came out of nowhere, so it did. That, that was, I was like, well, what? It, it feels very much uh, in keeping with the rest of the film. I don't know that I got it. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't. I mean, there's an element again of this, this predatory nature about the character as well, that she takes, um, takes him to this fair and her coven are already on hand to set up this mock marriage. Which is then followed by... Do you think that was yes. predetermined by her? Of I course don't, it was. I don't think you it sure? was predetermined by her. Yes, See, Ben doesn't think it was predetermined either. I I, Two I, against I, one. I happen to think that she is a much more self-aware and I say manipulative person. I think that she very yeah, clearly is in to control. Go, oh, I have horses. Let's go riding tomorrow. And then that to just pop up right where they're yeah, taking a break. That's not going to happen unless she knows that they're going to be there and she decides that they're going to have their break there. And it is all her covenant. It is all her friends are there. And they do suddenly have this mock marriage. That is deliberate. I think if she were as predatory as you suggest, we would have access to that because we have access to this character. We have enormous access to this character and I have not got anything predatory about her. I've got desperate from her. Um, she needy. Pick, she, she picks her friend's husband to have an affair with. Yeah, because he's there. She's but, so but full of need. I, I don't think it's even just because she was there. I think that is a choice. And at the end of the day, if, if she respected... She respected marriage. 
She, she respected she Trish, wouldn't. which she doesn't. Yeah, but I, I think, and then, but it's not even just that. That scene itself, I think, is sort of hint of the predatory. But there's also the ritual that she has again with the coffin, and she's got the photograph, and they're basically having a binding ritual, mm-hmm. um, which he is not part of. No, he is not there. He is not aware of this. But they're having a ritual that basically sort of says that the two yous are going to be together. Yeah, but it doesn't work. But at the that's end, that's kind of the point of it. It doesn't work. She's she's bought into this 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 illusion of female power that has been sold to her by by a predatory man. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I refer back to Alexander Saunders and the the, the witchcraft covens. Um, I mean, her initiation into the coven it's 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 presented as rape. Yeah, it seems seems to have scarred her pretty badly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the I think at the moment, in terms of a lot of the stuff that's going on in, in Hollywood and a lot of the references towards sexual abuse and manipulation, it, it mm. seems very pertinent. Yeah, I think um, there were predators in that movie, and I don't think any of them are Elaine. No, I I, I think she. she I, I think she is a predator, but I think she quite possibly is shaped by some of the men that are around her as well. In many respects, um, I think of something like I Spit in Your Grave, where, you know, you have a character who, a woman who's raped, who then takes revenge on the men around her. She kind of comes back after them um, and uses her sexuality as a way to kind of lure them into a full sense of security and, and, and bumps them off you one see, by one. I completely disagree with that reading of Elaine. <laughs> I'm going to ask Anna about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> I look forward to listening to that. She's going to yeah. put me down. I know. <laughs> but um, if if she does, you have to come back on here and go. Yes, Rachel, you were right, and I was wrong. I will. I won't cut this section out of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <I promise>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think that that, that there is there there's very definitely a predatory element towards the sort of the covens and the rituals that they have, and the fact that there is this manipulation. It's still about this one guy, and they are very very strongly sex oriented. They are, but I find that as played as though I don't want to say pathetic. I think pathetic is the wrong word, but it's it's certainly I don't think the power that Elaine thinks those rituals are invested in, or the Coven thinks are invested in those rituals. I don't think the the film gives us any sense that 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 power is real power. I think it's illusory power. Possibly, although there is this, um, there are a series of images that are around the flat that predetermine some of the outcomes of the the men that she is involved with. Yeah. Um. So there is some sort of link on an occult level. Um. I'm very aware that we're kind of running out of time as well. We've got about five minutes. Um. One of the things I do want to kind of uh, raise, we were talking about this the other week, actually, is for a woman who is basically the sexual object of desire for the film, Samantha Robinson. Um. She does not get her kid off. She does not get her kid off, no. She does. She, she does, but she doesn't. She gets her kid yeah. off, but her tits are always covered. You I can noticed see that. a little nipple poking through. But they're covered by hair. I mean, I, I was wondering. She's not exposed. She no. either has a really strong no nudity clause in her contract, oh. or that was a very deliberate move th- by Annabella, <clears throat> and I can't decide I th- which. I think that was deliberate. Even even during the ritual, though, you have the ritual of the coven, and sure. everybody else is basically exposed. She is mm-hmm. wearing a, a, a very thin pair of flesh-coloured pants. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that you have somebody who embodies this sort of sexual need and desire, mm. uh, and is sort of the focal point for that sex. But at the same time, she is also being shrouded and obscured. Is and that's t- why I can't decide whether it's a no nudity clause or whether it's a very clever decision. I kind of hope it's. I, I kind of hope it's a great clever decision because so it, it has this wonderful eroticism and anticipation that right. you do not get when you just expose it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to objectify Samantha Robinson either. That's not what 
this discussion is about. It's, it's actually that is quite. No, but, but but the whole film is about presenting her to be objectified and then not denying us basically the denying you the possibility of objectifying her. So it does seem like it's a very deliberate I, decision. Doesn't I really it? want it to yeah, be. Yeah, and please I, ask yeah, Annabella about that. Yeah, and please, no. please let it be the, the the other thing. Anything else we want to talk about while we're here? Um, uh, dongs. No, we talked about dongs. Talking about dongs. What about um, the monologue? Let's go back to the the fair, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, and the monologue that is happening with Elaine's monologue. Gar- Gar- Garrett, is that what you call him? Griff. Griff. I think Sorry. it's Griff. Griff. Um, Griff telling you his take on women and his thought. Yeah. And yeah, then they, her yeah. thought about you know love and marriage, and then him saying like, uh, you know. About women only want to give you more and more, and then start, you know, you know all that stuff. Uh huh. What are your views on that? That um, I I think it's quite interesting for a change to have this being scripted by a woman. Yeah. Um, because normally we have a monologue like that, it'll be something that some guy has written. So we know that it's his conjecture in terms of what I'm, uh, what he wants women to think. Um, I think that was a pretty good summarization of most men's attitude. I think it's a pretty good summarization of the central conflict that that sort of drives the whole film and why Elaine is not predatory and why she's actually a figure of pity rather than fear. I am going to watch this film again. So uh, we um, we could talk about this film for quite a long time. I think we certainly could. We probably will, actually, uh, but we're not going to let you listen into all that conversation. Um, so we're yeah. going to get violent at a certain point and, and nobody wants to hear that. You need to see that. You'll get violent. I think it would just turn into sort of one of us sort of punching the other going, it's a feminist masterpiece. Isn't it interesting that it's the woman in the room who's threatening violence at yeah. this point <laughs> after watching a film yeah. where the woman is the violent perpetrator? <laughs> but she's not predatory. Yeah. She's not predatory. Can we cut that bit? That just got really stupid. In <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's been left in. <laughs> so yeah, um, no, this is going to be a two-parter. Um, so we've already hinted at in the episode. We have, uh, in the next episode, we have an interview exclusively with Annabella herself, and you get to hear, um, get to hear her take on, on the production. And, uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that one as well. Oh, so am I. So yeah, we could talk about this film for hours and hours, and we probably will, let's be honest. Um, but you don't get to listen to all of that. Uh, we'll have those conversations by ourselves, but, you know, by all means, interact with us. We've got our Facebook and our Twitter. And we've got our website as well, so cinepunked.com. Uh, also find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, cinepunked. So thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, the voices in your ears, as always, have been our producer, Ben Simpson. Goodbye. The delightful gender theorist and colleague, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Goodbye. And I have been, continue to be, and hopefully will be for some time to come, Robert J.E. Simpson. Um, do subscribe to us on your favourite chosen platforms you can leave some comments and reviews on iTunes we'd really appreciate those and um, yeah tune in to us again very very soon for another exciting episode adios